Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to the Pirate Monk Podcast. I always like trying to do an <laughs> Nate is in Alaska right now. He's been sent there because of sins, and that's where people get sent. To, I don't know. I just remembered a story. He told me that they got sent to Alaska. It's really lame. Uh, he's having fun in Alaska with his bride. So I am here with Aaron with an E. Hi, yes. Aaron with an E. Welcome. Hi, Aaron with an A. <laughs> How are you doing? I am doing well. How are you? Oh, man. Remember, what day is it? <laughs> uh, Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah, I don't know. I'm doing all right. Yeah, I always take that question seriously, but I forget. That was like that was a very yes yeah, serious consideration of that question. I, I know, and I don't remember it. On Sundays, I get asked that a lot at church, and for some reason, by Sunday, I've forgotten everything from the week before. And my life is really tedious and boring, so I don't know why I can't just copy and paste an answer for that, because probably last week is going to be the same as this week. But well, yeah, Aaron, my, my heart feels like you need somebody to, to text you daily. Some Samson guy needs to text you daily and ask you, how are you feeling? <laughs> yeah, I, I, can, I can do it in the short term. <laughs> I can't do it from earlier today. Uh, yeah. Thank you for asking. That was a long, that was a way longer answer than if I had a good answer. I think I'm doing all right. I think I'm doing all right. Um, but we have a guest today and we talked for quite a while to our guest. I am so excited. We had such a good conversation. I'm, I'm conversation pumped up right now. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think we even need to banter about the weather or about your dog eating the bone, having to get kicked out of the room. My dog that should just be kicked out of this house because why do I need her? Oh, that's not true. Super true. Super true. I need a I need a period of life without pets just for a little while. I need a palate cleanser. I don't know what a palate cleanser is other than, please, animals, just all die at once and give me a few years off. No, I can't say that's so wrong. That's I didn't say that. That's going to make somebody upset. Yes. And, and the email that you need to send that to is. Oh. <laughs> I hope they forget about that till the end. Hurry, transition us out, Aaron. Save me. Save me. Save me. Well, we do have a wonderful interview up ahead. Um, it is with Mary Archibek. She is a CSAT out of Albuquerque. So she's in our my neck of the woods. Um, but she gives us a wonderful insight into her incredible journey, how she came to be a CSAT, um, and an insight into what is the difference between intimacy and intensity. Man, yes. I want to hear more. What do I have to do to hear more? You know what? You just have to hold your butt and sit tight. We'll be right back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hey, let's take just a moment to mention LifeWorks Counseling, our sponsor here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. 
This is uh, Roan and Eva and Roe Hunter working out of Madison, Mississippi, but serving the entire country. Well, these days, I don't think they're even restricted to the U.S. But whether you are an individual needing help or whether you need help as a couple, these are the folks who really know men's issues, women's issues, experts in recovery from sexual addiction, extramarital affairs, sexual brokenness of all kinds, porn addiction, false intimacy. They also can provide a therapy for depression and anxiety or for anger issues. And they are equipped to help with spiritual formation and soul care. In fact, uh, Roan and Eva will even work as a couple with a couple. If your marriage is at a spot where you really need some people who've been through the wars themselves and come out the other side, there's no better equipped couple to help you than Roan and Eva Hunter. There's also coaching available, so you can work either with a certified sex addiction therapist, a certified marriage and family a counselor, or with a certified coach. And you can do it directly in person or online. Uh, the way to find out more is to go to lifeworks.ms, lifeworks.ms, that's LifeWorks Counseling. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Oh man, Aaron with an E, we have a guest from your hometown, a CSAT in Albuquerque. I'm feeling like a third wheel here in Tennessee. Mary Archibek, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm so grateful to be here. It's, it's, it's weird seeing two of you on the screen right now, knowing that you're practically neighbors. <laughs> well, it is, a, it is a small world here in Albuquerque, right? How long have you been in Albuquerque? So I'm a local, born and raised. What? Yes. Now, <laughs> is that unusual? I mean, being near Nashville, the closer you get to Nashville, nobody's from Nashville. It's getting to be that way now. Yeah, we're like, whenever I'm in a group of people, I'm usually the only like native New Mexican. Um, whereas when I was growing up, that wasn't the case. But now I, you know, I'm kind of like in the minority, I think. Okay, so what what was it like growing up in Albuquerque? Because I'm I'm fascinated. I've been through there a number of times. It's an interesting place. Um, a lot of culture, a lot of culture, which makes it really beautiful and diverse. And um, yeah, beautiful landscape, lots of gorgeous mountains, and um, yeah, so a lot of history, a lot of culture here that I think gives it kind of makes it a soulful place. And a lot of people feel like they come here to heal, actually. When you say a lot of culture, give me more because I'm fascinated by culture. <laughs> well, I think we're one of the few states that actually, so the, I think his, the Hispanic population is like 52%. Um, and so when you, when you go through New Mexico, you're going to see color, right? You're going to see um, different skin colors. And then we have a, um, a high native, native population. Um, so we have like five Pueblos here and we have a lot of um, beautiful history, Native New Mex Native American history in New Mexico, um, combined with, you know, um, Spanish and Mexican and lots of mixes going on. Yeah. So that's what I mean by culture. So we have great food. We're known for our red and green chili that's grown here um, in our really rich soil from the Rio Grande River. And so it's just, you know, a lot of Catholicism, a lot of, um, you know, th that's kind of what you tend to see 
when you're here. And just so listeners know, if you're from California like me, and I can't speak to Texas, our Mexican food has a lot of cilantro in it, a bunch of things that when I went and, and ate Mexican a number of times in Albuquerque, found out that that is like a whole different kind of Mexican food. Now, this obviously has nothing to do with the podcast, but fascinating to me because I love me some Mexican food. <laughs> well, so, this is when we get into the, the difference between New Mexican and Mexican. And that's like a whole part of the culture, right? So there's New Mexican food, which is a different type of chili, which is like our locally grown, like red and green chili, like from Hatch, New Mexico, which is very like specific to us. Okay, I'm going to throw this out at the risk of sounding stupid. Are those hatch chilies? <laughs> okay, just check. I know what a hatch chili is. I didn't realize there was this New Mexican connection. Yeah, Man. it's from Hatch, New Mexico. And, you know, we have like a chili festival every year and it's like a whole thing. Um, but I promise you the chili you would get here in a local New Mexican restaurant is not going to taste like the hatch chili you're probably getting out of a can from, you know, your local grocery store. Well, three minutes and 47 seconds in, and we are already learning amazing things. Anyway, yeah. So we we have a lot, you know, so I grew up around a lot of culture. And and with that, like, what I love is that, you know, so I, I, I come from, right, like, my, my family is Hispanic and Catholic and the whole thing. And, like, so I feel like I, I have um, this influence of, like, a very passionate people. Like, I feel like there's a lot of that, whether it's in our food and our language and just, you know, you see it, you feel it. And so I think that that's one of the beautiful things um, of being in a place that feels very cultured. Well, what is the story going from this childhood in New Mexico to at some point becoming a drug counselor? And I'm not sure what your focus was, and then somehow that became you becoming a CSAT counselor and helping people with sexual brokenness and compulsions. What, how to draw those lines for me? Yeah. Well, so I guess that's one of the other um, unfortunate aspects of the culture in Albuquerque and New Mexico is we have a lot of drug addiction here um, and a lot of poverty. And those things kind of go hand in hand. Um, so in my family, there's been a, you know, drug addiction and alcoholism. And I lost my sister to a heroin addiction. When I was 14, she wow. died as a result of that. So, um, so I grew up seeing it, being around it, um, family members, cousins, you know, just kind of it being like in the background. Can, kind of can we pause on that for just one sure. second? Because I'm, 14 years old. How many siblings did you have? Just her. Just her. Mm -hmm. How, what was your age difference? 11 years. So she was 25. Wow. So what was that like for your poor little 14 year old heart and mind? Yeah. Well, maybe I should start even sooner than that. So our mom uh, passed away when I was two and my sister was, um, what, you know, 
13. So, but not from that. She passed away from a surgery that, you know, didn't go well. Okay. So unfortunately, if, if you're kind of familiar with some of the work, like Kelly McDaniel, who's a CSAT, talks a lot about mother hunger. So let me just set the stage there. Me and my sister both grew up with mother hunger because we didn't have a mom present. Okay. So my mom, my sister kind of became that nurturing maternal strong female figure for me. Yeah. And so then when she passed, so when you asked what was that like? So when she passed away, that was like a major loss for me. It was your, you lost your second mother Indeed. in only 14 years. Indeed. Indeed. So by the time I was 14, I had lost both my, my mother and my sister. So lots of loss, right, for me. And so when that happened, it it definitely triggered this whole part of me that became very angry. So here I am, 14. I'm probably like seventh grade, eighth grade. And I started to just, on top of like the the, the typical teenage thing of struggling with your identity and all of that, then I, I just had a lot of grief and anger that I you know, I didn't know what to do with. And so what did I do? Well, then I turned to drugs myself because that's what I knew. And, you know, um, so I started then abusing drugs. And so one of my, I think, big qualifiers for me being um, an addictions counselor is my own recovery <laughs> and, you know, my own um, experience with, with all of this and seeing like the worst of what addiction can do, which happened to my sister and then I started going down that same path because it was convenient. And, you know, drugs and alcohol or any addiction, really, they halt the grieving process. Mm -hmm. So with, with the different, you know, um, people I've worked with that are struggling with addictions, it's not uncommon to see that there was a major loss or death of some sort. And loss can come in lots of ways, divorce or whatever. But like, so I, you know, as, as we start to look, it's like, oh, well, so-and-so, you know, this happened, this person died, or, you know, you see that oftentimes there's some sort of grief that people are uh, medicating through their addictions. Okay. So that was my thing. Well, did it cross your mind? Cause I'm sure you weren't the only person in this boat. As you tell that story, I get this like clenched feeling in my chest of, oh, 14, 15-year-old you, don't go to the same thing that just robbed you. Do you remember what was going through your mind? Did that occur to you at all as you were numbing your grief through drugs? Oh my gosh, I'm going to where my sister went? So no. So that's the thing about addiction, right? Is that like, it's not logical, it's not, it's not. And nobody's like too smart um, to, to end up doing, um, you know, that's part of the problem with addiction is we're not using good judgment at all. So in fact, here's the irony. It almost made me feel closer to her mm. because I was doing a lot of the same things. I was hanging out with a similar crowd. So it almost felt like a link to her. Um, on a feeling level. Now, on a logical level, of course, it didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of stuff that is so important to look at when we look at our, you know, our choices. It's like, what was the real underlying need that was being met there? And so that's what I've come to realize over time. Now, at 14, 15, there was, I didn't realize that. I just knew that it felt good and it felt familiar to kind of live that similar lifestyle as her. 
Is that important for loved ones of people struggling with addiction to understand that you can't have, quote, sane conversations with a person who's in the depths of insanity? I think so. I think it's really, really important to not try to connect at the level of logic. Mm -hmm. Because that's not where we're going to connect. We're going to connect at the level of feelings. And it's like, let's look for the need and the feeling not argue details or try to connect at the head level because that's not what's happening there. And clearly logic isn't working in that, you know, in that moment, right. When we're making poor choices. So they're not operating from that level. All right. So you're numbing your grief. Where do you hit, hit the wall or the rock bottom, (laughs) or maybe it's a wall on the bottom that had fallen and now it was down there. Uh, When did you get to that point? Yeah. More like a helicopter. But yeah, so, <laughs> well, okay. So then, um, you know, my dad and my stepmom found out that I was abusing drugs. So they um, put me in, you know, my first rehab. That didn't work because I didn't get my choice. And I how, was, how old were you at that point? 14, 15. Oh, wow. So yeah. they quickly found out and you went to rehab. Was this like kid rehab or were you surrounded by adults? Adolescents. Okay. It was a it was a, a place for adolescents in New Mexico, and so I go there, and actually just kind of backfired because I ended up with some really rough girls in there, and it just didn't didn't really work, and I didn't want to be there, and I wasn't ready, right? So then um, I go into my second rehab, second rehab, same thing, didn't work. Met a bunch of really rough other adolescents, and um, then I finally decide on one of my benders. I thought it'd be a good idea to go off with a friend of mine to Phoenix and we partied every day for, you know, weeks straight. I, I was then trying meth. I was, you know, do, using cocaine every day. I was, you know, I was doing things. Things were definitely progressing. And then on the drive back from Phoenix to Albuquerque, um, the driver of our vehicle was high and he started hallucinating and he started swerving and the, it was a truck with a camper on the back and me and my friend were in the back of the truck sleeping oh, no. and we woke up to him swerving on the freeway. And eventually the vehicle rolled over three times. The camper came off and we were ejected from the vehicle. So, and this was on the freeway, like Flagstaff, Arizona, midway between Phoenix and Albuquerque. And so then here I am, like I get up, I had landed in a bunch of cactus and it's like November freezing cold and it's probably like one, two in the morning. Okay. So it's dark and a trucker behind us had seen the accident happen and called 911. And so a helicopter came and as they're cutting off my clothes, like getting ready to like pin me to this board and load me on the helicopter, I'm staring up at the sky and all I can see are like the stars. And I literally said to myself, what are you doing with your life? And that right there was the best thing that could have ever happened to me was that accident. Because clearly rehab wasn't working and I literally needed a slap in the face. And that was my bottom. And um, so then I go, you know, I mean, there's a lot of details. I don't, you know, so, you know, end up being flown to a a hospital in Phoenix and they did a lot of x-rays and I was fine. Nothing, no injuries. And I had just been in a vehicle that was totaled, rolled over three times and I was ejected from the vehicle. 
So my dad always says that my mom and my angels protected me in that car accident because really I probably shouldn't even be alive today to be, you know, having this conversation. So, um, yeah. So then from that point forward, I just stopped. I just never did, um, never touched drugs again. Um, so then so, has- so no, no recovery process. You, you'd been through these rehabs, you know, about the process, but you just got like scared straight kind of, Correct. So, and, and, okay. I know I'm skipping ahead in the story, but then you engage in drug counseling where most people don't get the miracle of that kind of recovery experience. That's, yeah. that's fascinating, but okay. Could continue with the story, but let's put a pin in that because that's really amazing mm-hmm. that you had gone through what you did and then had that experience. And that was enough to, to get you off of drugs. That's okay. All because right, literally I, I was like, wow, I should have died. And when you face your own mortality like that, it can really be a wake up call. And it was for me. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Um, because in that moment, it literally had to be a, de- it was a defining moment for me and it mm. could have gone one way or the other. And thank goodness, you know, it did scare me into not doing that anymore. I was like, okay, I'm good. Like that. So from that point forward, literally stopped hanging out with those friends, stopped doing all that. Um, so I barely graduated high school, barely. Okay. I literally was last in my class when I graduated high school, I graduated from a Catholic high school here in Albuquerque. And I barely got through high school and I was like, you know, sleeping through school, not caring about school. But after that accident, all of a sudden I start, I decided I just want to, you know, give a shit about my life and about myself. And so then I go on this whole thing of like, okay, I'm going to like do things right. So I start checking all the boxes and then I go to school, I go to college, I bought a house at 19. I start like doing all the things I start achieving right? Because the addict in me, you know, we're very extreme, right? Addict. Mm. <laughs> so it's like, it's pretty impressive what happens when we shift our energy, you know, and, and start, you know, getting like, getting serious about things. And that same energy, you know, that we use to do whatever it took to get high. Well, now I was doing whatever it took to like get my life back on track. But again, I was working on the outsides. Okay. So I got the degrees, I bought the house, Um, all of that, you know, so I didn't go to a therapist. I became one as they say at that point in my life. Okay. So then, um, here I am, I, I become a therapist. My first job was working in a methadone clinic with heroin addicts. And, um, my whole thing was like, I didn't see them as addicts. I saw them as souls. And I was like, this is, these are my people. Like, this is where I want to be. And I was able to see beyond like the tattoos and, all of the intimidating front that they put up because I'm like, you know, I treated them the way I would have wanted someone to treat my sister had she gotten help. Mm. So, that's, so, that, so that was always in your mind that you yes. were. Indeed. Mm, I Indeed. love that. I was like, you know, somebody cares about this person. This might be somebody's big sister or mom or dad or son or daughter or somebody. Right. And that somebody cares about. So that's how I went into that. Um, And I was able to connect really well. And we had to do groups. And the groups that I would do, I'd have a line out the hallway because people, because I I realized that even though in in school, they like would tell us, well, the blank slate thing, all of that, just be a blank slate. 
I learned that if I, as I started to tell my story and started to say to them, you know, I, you know, I'm in recovery and I had an addiction that it resonated and that we were able to connect at that level. And so it really helped me from the beginning to realize, wow, okay, there is power in what I've been through. And when I can say to them, yeah, I might be the therapist, but my life isn't perfect either. I grew up without a mom. My sister died from a heroin addiction. I flew out of a, you know, a truck and almost died. Like I, you know, I started to realize, wow, that's how we connect. We don't connect at the level of perfection. We connect at the level of vulnerability and authenticity. So I started to do that. So is there a bit of a problem with the blank slate idea? Okay. The therapist is a blank slate. They're just supposed to reflect back things for another person process, but in addiction recovery, in addiction, that search, that longing for connection, that longing for intimacy that's coming out sideways, it seems like there has to be some kind of connection with the person that's trying to help them, or else you're just like, hey, the thing you want the most, that's not me, but let me help. That's just (laughs) weird, right? I mean, it seems weird. Totally, totally. And so it was weird for me, because I was going against what I had been taught in graduate school. Um, But I saw it working. And so I just kept going with it. And I was just like, you know what, and you're right, the opposite of addiction is connection. And that's what we're all needing. And so I kind of stumbled upon it accidentally realizing that, and that was the way that some of these really, you know, hardcore people, I would see them kind of let their guard down a little bit once I would start to um, you know, share a little bit of my story. And of course I would only share to the degree that I felt it benefited them or that sure. it was necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So before we make the turn, Aaron with an E, you must be having some thoughts before we find out how this journey leads to being a CSAT. What are you thinking? I just think it's beautiful how as part of your journey, you were able to see their humanity instead of whatever mask they were wanting to wear um, that they expect or that they expected others to see in them and to sit there and say, I'm not perfect. I don't have all the answers. Um, I have a past of immense brokenness as well. Um, and to, to reflect back humanity and see their humanity like that reciprocal relationship there um i think is something that people can can misperceive in seeing a counselor mm-hmm. um it can keep them from seeing a counselor mm-hmm. um because they expect i i expected someone to sit in the chair and nod at me and say well how does that make you feel mm-hmm. um which i'm like i don't like, I want someone to be real with me and to say, hey, look, I struggle with that, too. Or, you know what? I get angry as, you know, with my children as well. Um, We're all human. Um, I think that's beautiful that you learned that in such a natural way. Um, And and that you you rocked the boat and went against what you learned in school. Um, I I think that's awesome. You're you're a rebel. Oh, look at that. (laughs) Well, and I think that this is the kind of stuff you can't learn in school, right? Like Mm. they can't teach you passion and caring. And, you know, one of my favorite things I heard is that people don't care how much, you know, they care how much you care. And so in all my career, nobody's ever actually asked me what my GPA was in college or where my degrees come from. 
No one's ever asked me. I've yet to have a client ask me that. I could have like five PhDs behind me. But if I convey that I don't care about them, the PhDs aren't going to matter. But I could tell them, you know what? I graduated last in, in my class in high school. But if I convey that I care, they're not going to, it's not going to matter. So that's the thing. It's like, um, and then the, the really like amazing part of the whole thing is that I was benefiting because I was forming these connections and it was making my job so rewarding. And so this whole thing of like burnout, I wasn't experiencing that at that point because I was just feeling like, wow, I'm connecting. And so I'm feeling good about, you know, what I do. Uh, so it definitely helped. It helped to come at it from that angle because, and this is the other thing too, whenever I work with people on imposter syndrome, I teach them this because a lot of times it's like, oh my gosh, I'm not qualified to do what I do. I didn't feel qualified at that point. Are you kidding? I was a brand new baby therapist. And here I am working with like some hardcore, <laughs> you know, heroin addicts. And I didn't feel qualified either. But at the end of the day, what qualified me was that I cared and that I had this history. Is there transferable advice to those who are in relationships with addicts? <clears throat> because you're talking about threading the needle between disconnection. I don't want to get too involved. They need to do their own work. You can get that kind of hardcore mm. thinking. And the other side is, no, I want to connect. I want them to know I care. And that becomes codependent or whatever the new word that we're allowed to say is. Um, but but those those are the dangers on both sides. And especially for family members, you're like, okay, I want to be present. I want to connect. I want to show I care. But I also don't think me enabling you, doing your work for you is helpful anymore. Mm -hmm. Is there some advice for how to walk out what you just described? Well, so this is one of my like rules is I never work harder than my clients. Mm, I like and that. I teach that to all the partners I work with, that you should not be working harder than them. You should also not care more than they care about their own recovery. So, and this is one of the things I see with a lot of partners is they overfunction, and their overfunctioning allows the person with the addiction to underfunction. So we can care. Trust me, I care deeply for my clients, and I care for them so deeply that I'm not willing to rob them of the benefit they would get from doing the work and being able to take credit for it. They get to take full credit or full blame for however it goes, right? Because of the way they're showing up. I will certainly meet them there and I will work as hard as they're willing to work, but I will never work harder and I will never care more. And if I ever find that that's what's happening, then I remove myself and let them come back when they're ready. Can we, can't can you just, this is uh, <laughs> painful to hear as I have been in, in the middle of this uh, at various times with some loved ones. And mm -hmm. can we just throw out that when you do that, there's a fair chance that you're going to be hit with an awful lot of vitriol and blaming. Like th there can be an avalanche of emotional consequences and manipulations when mm -hmm. you say, I'm stepping back until you care enough to do it. It's it's not an easy path. At least it hasn't been for me when I've tried to make that choice and know in my heart that was a loving choice. Sure. 
But oh man, the shots. Yeah. Well, you know, to love someone is to set boundaries. And in fact, I feel like when we work harder than them, we actually set ourselves up more to be blamed because we're the one making the choices. We're the one telling them what to do, how to do it. We're giving them the phone numbers. We're setting up the appointments. And then if they don't like how it works out, guess who they get to blame? They get to blame you because you're the one that chose the therapist. You're the one that set up the appointment. You're the one that did all that. So if a, if a, if a family member calls me, I do not ever schedule that way. I tell them the person who is going to be working with me needs to pick up the phone and invest in their own recovery and give me a phone call. And then I will be happy to talk with them. But I do not ever schedule. And, and I also be careful of, you know, oftentimes when that happens, we're talking about people are in crisis. And when people are in crisis, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'll do whatever it takes in crisis. Yeah. And it's easy to get sucked into their crisis. But I've learned that their crisis is not my crisis. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to start to take that on. And this is where we get into intensity as well, because crisis creates a lot of intensity, doesn't it? So whether you're the family member or you're the person with the addiction, this is where we start to everybody's getting caught up in the intensity of the crisis. Yes. And what is the difference between intensity and intimacy? <laughs> Well, that's the difference is that intimacy actually isn't probably always going to feel like intensity. Oftentimes, true intimacy feels peaceful and safe and and, gra- and grounded. There's just grounded. A, a gravitas. There has to be something that's anchoring us and grounding us. And so that's the whole thing. It's like if we stay grounded, even if there is a crisis happening, I'm not going to be happy that there's a crisis happening. If I have a client that's suicidal or something like that, but if I show up grounded to the crisis, I'm in a position to respond better rather than me getting sucked up into the crisis with them and getting all, you know, feeding off all that intensity. So I've, I've never thought about, <laughs> though I've, though I've witnessed it, I have not thought about how intensity is a version of false intimacy. Mm. that that makes everyone participating feel like oh we're in this together we're helping we're in a it's yes. it's a it's a foxhole situation where we all get bonded through the intensity and the crisis even if the crisis and intensity is only coming from one person and it's not even a crisis it's mm-hmm. just them spiraling <laughs> but it feels like intimacy but i love that it's how you described it no it's not Intimacy would feel like we can take a breath and work together, not one person uh, sitting in the director's chair with a beret and one of those big megaphones. This is like the 1940s right now. But anyways, they're, they're directing the action. That's not intimacy. That is not, no. And so whether we're confusing um, intensity, you know, the way you're describing it for intimacy, which a lot of people do, and really that probably is more trauma bonding than anything, Um, Or whether we're talking about the person with the love, sex, or porn addiction that's confusing intensity for intimacy. Um, Either way, this can happen in lots of different contexts, right? Where it's like we're confusing because what is intensity? Intensity is an activated attachment system. Our our nervous system is activated and that makes us feel alive. And we all want to feel alive and that feels good. And so for the partner, 
you know, they feel alive because they feel needed. Oh, you know, we got another crisis. Let me, you know, she feels alive. She's having an emotional experience that she might not otherwise be having in this relationship. And, and then, you know, and then for the addict, whether they're getting intensity uh, or the love addict or the porn addict, it's like, oh, this must be love because I feel alive. And they're not consciously saying it's an activated attachment system. They don't, you know, we don't have that much awareness at that point. All we know is we feel all excited inside. So this is where intensity and intimacy are really actually very, very different. But until we start to learn what real intimacy is and that it should actually feel more peaceful um, and safe and respectful, uh, then we can easily confuse intensity for a lot of things that it isn't. Okay, Aaron with an E. Yes. Um, so my question is if you grew up in a house that was very intense and that, that's all you know is intimacy, how do you help individuals or couples navigate distinguishing that when intimacy to them does not feel grounded and safe and all those lovely um, descriptors that y'all said earlier? Um, if I grew up in chaos, that that's not what I equate to intimacy. So how do you how do you start to even transition your understanding of intimacy when that is what you know? So I start to educate clients on attachment um, and teaching them, you know, what what that what's happening there in their nervous system. And so it's a little bit of somatic work in terms of like teaching a person to recognize, because if you grew up in that household, that's normal for you to actually always be a little bit hypervigilant. Like your nervous system was a little bit activated always probably. And which means your fight or flight system was always a little bit activated. And what is that? That's what that becomes familiar. So I teach my clients the difference between what's healthy and what's familiar. And familiar doesn't mean healthy, but we tend to gravitate towards what's familiar. And in fact, at that point, what's healthy is going to feel unfamiliar. So we need to learn to tolerate that and to realize, oh, wow, you know, even some partners like, you know, will pick a fight every now and then just to get that, that, oh, you know, you know, there's, there's nothing happening here. It's been really uneventful all week, maybe, you know, and again, this is all happening unconsciously, right? This is why we want to bring the unconscious conscious. So we can start to notice all the ways that we are trying to seek out what's familiar, um, not healthy, familiar, and start to rewire some of that and say, okay, I don't want familiarity anymore. I actually want to see what it feels like to have predictability and security and consistency versus, and then I teach them about, okay, let's introduce some healthy spontaneity. Healthy spontaneity is good. That makes us feel alive too. Um, But we don't want the unhealthy kind where you don't know what to expect in a bad way. But do you want some healthy spontaneity? Like, oh, you know, I made us reservations at your favorite restaurant tonight, get dressed. Oh, cool. That's a nice, you know, oh, let's go for a road trip tomorrow. Um, things like that, where we start to learn healthy ways to get that emotional experience that we previously were getting in unhealthy ways. Wow. I, you're, you're bringing up stuff that I've never thought of before, Mary. I love it so much. There, 
there's a Greek, there's four different words for love in the Greek, and, and one doesn't get talked about very much. Um, eros, phileo, Philadelphia, brotherly love, erotic love, and agape, God's love, get talked about a lot. But the, the fourth one is storgi. And it, it is, I, I really have only listened, I had an audio recording of C.S. Lewis talking about it. So that's my touchstone in my head. But it's, it's a, a love that is just a familiarity that all animals can have. It's not unique to humans. He describes it as the sound of the thumping dog's tail when you come in a room, that that just becomes the accustomed thing. And I remember when he talked about it, I had amazing parents. And I thought, oh, my, my storgy, my love, my safe place was the sound of my mom's sewing machine as I went to bed. Um, just those sounds and those things. And I never thought about how that which can be described as a type of love can be just as negative as mine were positive. Those sounds and feelings when parents, my dad would come home, the smell of my mom baking, all of those were just the familiarity that was love. But what happens when you don't have that? Going back to what you were saying, Aaron, all of a sudden that love compartment is filled up with familiarity that was nothing but inappropriate and not at all intimate and not at all love, but it filled that container that was meant for peaceful and secure feelings within a home that created attachment. Uh, and I just, I had never thought of that until you were both talking about that, that that's just breaks my heart. And I love that that can be a conscious process to say, I recognize this. When this chaos happens, I actually take a sort of breath in my soul and go, oh, this is familiar. This is home. And to simply say, I don't want that to be home. I find that inappropriate. I can't change the fact that that's my first response, but I can become aware that I'm inappropriately considering that part of my intimate love life with other humans. I, that's, I, there was no question there. I was just thinking about Storgi while you guys were talking. Love do you that. Want, do you want to add anything to that process of, of how people take that first cognitive step? I appreciate when there are cognitive steps. It feels doable. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, beginning to just look at that and beginning to look at the parallels between childhood and our current circumstances and what might seem familiar um, and begin to look at, okay, so, you know, our partner is the next closest thing to our parent mm -hmm. and our parents are our first examples of love and relationship. And so it's not surprising that we end up choosing partners that are very similar to that. Mm. And so being able to look at that and uh, really do some work there and then, you know, be able to, to notice that when we heal ourselves, we do heal our family and our history. And that's where we are able to kind of break that, that pattern of historical trauma that might get carried on over and over again and start to like redefine what some of these things mean. What does it mean to, you know, to love and what does it mean to feel safe and and then if they have kids, I usually use that as another motivator, you know, um, kind of like, would you want this relationship for your daughter or your son? 
and what might they be learning um, as they're as they're watching what's happening here? Yeah. So much story work in these things. <laughs> All right, Aaron, I know we got to get to this because this is one of the things we're supposed to get to, which which is cross addiction somehow you decided after all of this work and sounds like beautiful and successful work helping people with drug addiction you decided let's throw sex into the mix (laughs) why how why you you took a left turn but maybe it wasn't a turn at all well yeah (laughs) it's you know it's awesome how how things happen right because it definitely wasn't ever something i had um planned on or intended on doing but it makes like looking back on it, it's it's a great thing, and and I love what I do. Uh, so before working with sex, I actually started off with gamblers. So I was working for um, a counseling agency here in Albuquerque called the Evolution Group, and I was there for eight years. And I started off working with the um, with felons with, you know, so it was like bank robbers and really hardcore, (laughs) um, clients. And I started to like, um, want to diverse my caseload a little bit. And so the director said, well, start working with, um, some of our gamblers because here in New Mexico, we have five casinos within a 50 mile radius. And if you look at the statistics, anywhere you put a casino, you start to see gambling problems. Okay. So that's what we started to see. So where I worked, we actually had a contract with some of the casinos to treat compulsive gambling. And this was back when compulsive gambling was not recognized as a real addiction, right? It was not in the DSM. It wasn't covered by insurance, but the casinos as part of their contract to be able to open in New Mexico, they had to contribute a certain amount of money towards treatment of compulsive gambling. So I started working with the Compulsive Gambling um, Center in this organization, and we actually had a recovery house for compulsive gamblers. It was the only recovery house in the country. And so I ran that recovery house for three years, and I started running the compulsive gambling program. And so here I was working with a behavioral addiction back before behavioral addictions were really even considered to be real addictions. And yet I was seeing people, they were suicidal. They were filing bankruptcy. They were getting divorced. They were like, their whole lives were being turned upside down. They would stay at the casino for 24 hours at a time, not go to the bathroom, not eat, neglect all of their responsibilities. And I was like, wow. So then I started learning more about gambling and what they call process addictions, which are behavioral addictions. And you know, through MRI studies, we saw that a compulsive gambler, their brain lights up just like a heroin addict or a cocaine addict. And then I would see, because at this time I was working with a mix, right? I still had, you know, my, my drug addicts. And then I had my compulsive gamblers. And I have to tell you that like the compulsive gambling was harder. It was harder. And, um, so that's that was my first exposure and my to behavioral addictions. And people were really struggling to understand that. They they really couldn't understand how can this be a real addiction? There's no substance involved. 
Um, and so, and it's almost easier to hide because if you're drunk, well, you can smell it, you can see it, <laughs> there's evidence. But these behavioral addictions are actually a lot sneakier. They can stay hidden a lot longer because you don't have the slurred speech. You don't have the physical symptoms that drug and alcohol you know, abusers have. So that was where I started. And my director there, he actually became a CSAT. And he started exposing us to this idea of sex addiction. And then I started noticing that many of the people in the recovery house for compulsive gambling, also, as we started to ask more questions about porn use and sex, um, they had problems with that. So we started seeing that there was a lot of cross addiction there. And then sure enough, one of the guys in the recovery house charged up a ton of pay-per-view charges while he was living there watching porn. So come to find out that. Sorry. Yeah. So not, not only was he struggling with porn addiction, but he didn't know how to use technology and that <laughs> everybody else is getting porn for free. That's what I thought, but I'm not going to say it because that felt like no. not the place to go. Keep in mind, this was probably like 2008 or so, or 2010. Yeah. So it actually wasn't quite as accessible at that time as it is today. And I'm not sure because he was a compulsive gambler and probably had gambled away his entire life savings. He probably didn't have a cell phone. <laughs> well, there you go. Yes. Yeah. So, sorry. That was just an, a totally inappropriate speed bump. It's okay. it's okay. So that's where this all started. And so then I started working with, um, you know, I started dabbling with, doing my best because he was introducing us. My director was introducing us to some of the concepts around treating sex addiction. So I started working with some clients that were struggling with that. And I started asking questions and I learned to ask, how much porn do you watch? I don't ask, do you watch porn? I say, how much porn do you watch? I ask all my clients that male, female, doesn't matter. Um, and I, I also ask my client, my female clients, how much porn does your husband watch? And I, I learned to start asking this, just like I was asking, how much do you gamble? Because three out of 10 drug addicts also have a gambling problem, but nobody's asking them how much they gamble. And people are coming to therapy for depression, anxiety, and nobody's asking them how much porn they watch. So this is like the new hidden disease, in my opinion. Um, and so then I started doing my best and I was working with people with porn and sex addiction, the best I could. But then I ended up having a client who her husband was seeing a CSAT. And so then she signed a release of information for us to communicate. And then I started talking to him and he was like, so you probably really should get, you know, certified in sex addiction because it's a world of difference. And um, he's like, you know, a lot of CSATs are actually probably not really even going to want to work with you because we feel like we have to educate you on the process. And there's a whole model that we follow. And I was like, oh, wow. But I was like, wow, do I really want to take that on? Because to get certified as a sex addiction therapist is like getting a second master's degree. It's two years and thousands of dollars worth of time and effort and supervision and all of that. And so I was like, do I really want to take this on? But then I realized that I kind of, if I'm going to do this, I need to really actually do it right. And the more I kind of researched Patrick Carnes 
and the model and how it works. And I realize it's going to give me a framework and I'm going to be able to do what I do a whole lot better. And I will feel more qualified as well, (laughs) because even though I care what I'm doing, it would be nice if I actually had some sort of like protocol to follow. And, you know, and here in uh, New Mexico, we only have like a handful of CSATs in the whole state. Aaron told me there were only three in Albuquerque. Okay. Well, there you go. And did I quote um, you right, Aaron? I all of a sudden feel insecure about that. It was a passing (laughs) comment you made. Have, have you noticed that after me? <laughs> I might be wrong. No, I'm doubting myself, but I do. I do think it's like it's only three or four, and maybe five total in the whole state. It's I not think, much. Yeah, I think maybe maybe five, and I think two are female, including me. <laughs> so I mean, there you go. Like it's a really small. Unfortunately, it's you know we have a huge need, and so I realized that like wow, I really need to um, do this, and so I took it on. And I did it. And I have to say it has been like one of the best things I've ever done because it has made me a better therapist all the way around and realizing that at the heart of everything is connection at the heart of everything is intimacy, no matter what somebody comes to me to work on, even if it's just self intimacy, even if it's connection with self, I mean, this stuff is like really, really powerful. When we start to look at relationship, everything is a relationship, relationship with self, relationship with nature, relationship with the present moment. Um, We're always in relationship. And so it's been um, really, really, really life-changing for me. And it's been a humongous privilege to do what I do and to get to have people share with me what they, what they share. Nice. Aaron, any other questions about cross addiction that you need to ask? Uh, I don't know if it's for your sake or Justin's sake, since uh, he was excited about that question. So ask away for your your beloved. <laughs> I think it's just something that, like, we were completely unaware of, even in the midst of it all, of how much um, other compulsive behaviors were present um, with Justin. And when you take away the primary source of numbing out, of coping with stress or anxiety. Um, It's so natural then to turn to video gaming or alcohol or over-exercising or um, things that might be considered healthy but in excess or not. Um, And I just think it was so, as part of our journey, eye-opening to recognize that it is so natural to have multiple compulsive behaviors that you turn to um, and something to be curious about within my own self. Like what are my compulsive behaviors as well? Um, Healthy, unhealthy. Uh, I might not have been plastered in a newspaper because of my behaviors, Mm -hmm. but I still have some very unhealthy coping behaviors. Um, And just to be curious about that. Yeah. I I love this because it's so like for myself personally, I just say, I'm an addict and which means I can abuse anything that makes me feel good. Yeah. So I don't really even uh, narrow it down. I don't underestimate the power of me abusing anything if I'm not careful, even though I have my certain drug of choice. Um, But there's always all these other things that can certainly take the edge off if we're, you know, if we're in a position of like, Oh, I want to feel good. Well, we can turn to lots of things today because we live in a distracted world. And actually, I was just at the CSAC conference a couple of weeks ago, and the keynote speaker was Dr. Anna Lemke, who wrote a book called Dopamine Nation. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't know if you guys are familiar with her, but she is, you know, she's, she's going all the way there. And she's saying that we are all addicts. <laughs> We're all addicted to something at this point, um, whether it's scrolling or drinking or shopping or eating or video games, um, you name it. Like, and so this is definitely something to be aware of is our relationship to technology, our relationship to numbing out and all the things that we have access to today to do that. So I think it's it's very important, Erin, uh, what you're mentioning. And I always hold my partners very accountable. And I always say, let's look at what you're doing. Because sometimes that's what surfaces, actually. Sometimes I might have a guy who's like doing amazing. He's a rock star in recovery. He's doing the meetings. He's doing therapy. He's doing all of it. He's not taking his phone to the bathroom anymore. He's, he's offering it all up. And now he's sitting there on the couch watching his wife scroll away. And now she's not available. He's available now. Mm-hmm. And she's, you know, drinking wine at three o'clock in the afternoon and always in her phone. And I'm like, wait, now you have this totally emotionally available partner. And now we're realizing that all this time you haven't been available either. So I've got two questions. I, I don't know. What's, what's your time like? We've kept you a while. I don't want to intrude upon your. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I can go a little longer if you'd like. Okay. Two questions. And then yes. I promise we'll wrap it up. Okay. Oh, my goodness. You want me to just ask them both and you can decide what you want to do with them? Okay. Uh, Ask both and we'll, we'll see where we go. Okay. So, so question one is uh, how do we, in in a dopamine nation where everything around us is, Mm -hmm. yeah, I enjoy cooking. Well, then I'll spend, you know, how many hours looking up recipes? I don't even need a recipe book. I'll just have piles of recipes and I'll just spend (laughs) hours cooking. Like everything can become so extreme. Uh, practical ways to get around that for people that when you say, well, then turn your phone off for X chunk of time. And they're like, no, but seriously, that's, that's ridiculous. But what can I really do? Uh, that's number one. Number two is how to find that line because of cross addiction. Obviously everyone, not everyone, People know the the meme of the AA meeting where everybody's outside chain smoking, uh, you know, after the meeting. And you're like, yeah, you got to pick something to do. Um, but again, there are these, quote, healthy ways where mm-hmm. now I'm going to devote that extra time to work. Well, am I a workaholic? But, mm-hmm. but then I don't. Well, now am I lazy? Like, mm-hmm. finding those acceptable margins for acceptable activities. It almost feels like many of these discussions leave me feeling like, okay, so I'm a fuck up no matter what I do. Is that, is that what I'm hearing right now? What, what am I supposed to be understanding? Those, those were my two questions. Okay. Um, Let's see. Remind me of the first one again. The first one was in a world that is so saturated in stuff to be engaged in, just constant mm-hmm. stimulation. What is what is a practical way to be present and not looking for dopamine hits, whether it's uh, recipes or porn? So what 
So, so it's okay to want things that make us feel good. In fact, I work on this um, because I think it's super important is coming at life from this idea of like existential existentialism. We need something that's going to give our life meaning and purpose. There's a big difference between something that's just distracting me and something that's giving my life meaning and purpose. And so I work with clients around, okay, so is this distraction, entertainment, addiction, or is it actually somehow improving your quality of life? Like, is there something here that's feeding you body, mind, and spirit, or one of the three at least? And so I think that this is where we need to start like increasing our standards for what we're willing to accept and not settle for just being distracted. Because the, the addict in us loves that, loves that instant gratification, that just, you know, quick fix. But at the end of the day, we're still left starved. It's not nourishing our soul or our body or our mind. And so really being able to take a step back. Sometimes people don't even know the difference. This goes back to that thing of familiarity. Hmm. We're so used to just numbing out and going for the instant gratification, quick fix, that we don't even know what we're missing out on. We don't even know how good it would actually feel to go for a walk instead of sit on the couch and, you know, watch Netflix and stuff our face. The end of the night, you know, which one's going to make you feel better? And so, but as we work on increasing our self-worth and our self-respect, hopefully we will start to require higher and better quality of life for ourselves. Is the only way to find that. I grew up in very low church, so I'm not Catholic, not even high church Protestant. So I, I never did Lent. Lent wasn't a thing. And yet later in life, uh, at least once a year, I would call a friend and say, hey, for the next three months, I, I am going to not do these three things. And they weren't necessarily bad, but I wanted to see, A, is it hard for me to stop? Am I way too attached? Uh, and, and B, do I gain something good? Mm-hmm. And, and so I felt like I had to dabble and experiment to even answer that question. Yeah. And that's what sometimes I'll, I'll tell my clients just for fun. Let's just see how it feels. Let's just do a little experiment and just see what does it feel like when you start to, so we can't just take away, we have to replace we can't just ask somebody to give up their best friend, their addiction, which has been their best friend and their coping skill and their go-to, right? We can't just say, okay, let's just take that away and just leave you with this gaping void in your life. So we do need to start to replace it with something else. And we need to, we want to still get that dopamine, but in healthy ways. Mm-hmm. Because when we, when we flood our brain with dopamine from porn or sex addiction or substances, there's actually this after effect where our baseline of dopamine goes lower than it was before. Wait, say that again. Say that again. I was listening. Okay. But I, so just, just the last part again. So when we flood our brain with dopamine, mm-hmm. whether it's video games, porn, sugar, um, any addictive behavior substances, we're flooding the brain with dopamine, right? Um, mm-hmm there's an after effect where our baseline of dopamine goes lower than it was before we flooded it. Which causes so, the craving. So then we have this vicious cycle. Exactly. Um, but 
if we earn our dopamine by exercising or something that is meaningful to us, then we don't have that. Then it actually is like a slow effect and we get the, the long-term benefits. We don't have that crash afterwards. Okay. And so I think of it like that. So every day when I work out, I say, I'm getting my dopamine today. So instead of me doing cocaine, I go exercise and I find ways to, <laughs> to, to get my dopamine um, in a way that's actually going to last longer and feel fulfilling. But that is a great segue to the second question. Yes. Because I can do the exercising to get my dopamine hit. And, and where is the margin where it's like, good boy, that was a healthy thing to do. Or... <laughs> Dude, you just swung to the other side again. Well, that's when we got to look at motives and we got to say, okay, so what's your motive for exercising? Are you, are you exercising to feed your ego or to feed your soul? Because those look very different. And are there consequences to your exercising? Are you exercising to the point that it's taking away from other areas of your life? So is it adding or is it subtracting? So that same... Those same questions can be uh, asked for work that is replacing, you know, oh, I'm not, I'm not actively in my addiction. I have so much more time to get stuff done. I've found. Okay. Pause. Those two questions work. Okay. So say those two questions again. So what is the motive behind Mm -hmm. the behavior? Okay. Is it feeding your soul or feeding your ego? So are you now working to the point that now you're using work as a way to feed the ego, right? Um, And is it adding or is it subtracting from your life? And how does it fit into recovery, right? As a healthy person in recovery, well, recovery should always come first because anything that we put ahead of recovery, we lose anyway. So first of all, there's that looking at where are the priorities, where are the values, And do my behaviors align with that? If I say I value recovery and I value health, but I'm either working all day and then when I get home, I do nothing but play video games and ignore my family. Well, then that doesn't make sense. If you tell me you value your recovery and your, and your health. So we, we want all of these things to start to align in recovery. Like your lifestyle should reflect your value system. Your lifestyle should reflect your value system. The word lust uh, comes to mind with those questions. I love, oh, daughter in California calling. Sorry, I didn't uh, silence that. Uh, the word lust often for, for many people comes back to sex, which it's not. Mm-hmm. The, word, the word lust means an overburning, an epithemio. So that which can be good, when you ask those two questions and get an answer that satisfies true intimacy and connection needs, when it becomes obsessive, when it's an overburning, not just a burning, I'm passionate about this, but it becomes consuming and ultimately consumes me and anyone who gets close to me, uh, that's when it becomes a problem. And that's that's helpful for me because I don't have to judge every action. Like there are many good actions. It's cool. Do good things, but watch out because any burning, any passion can become an overpassion. And well, now we got to start again and that's cool. We can start again. 
happens to all of us. Well, happens to me. I won't speak for you guys. I won't wee on you. Happens to me. I can get overburning. Yeah, but I like you know I like the idea of just continuously taking an inventory of ourselves and looking at you know where are we at like how where am I out of balance where might I need to course correct and to do that with grace and with self compassion and not beat myself up because it's like oh you know this week I was a little you know a little extreme in this or that. And just get to this. This is why accountability is so important. Having a support system is so important. Having a community, having fellowship where we get to tell on ourselves and we get to hold ourselves accountable and we get to continuously check in with ourselves. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And, you know, how, how does my recovery look lately? And so I, I think it's good to continue to check in with ourselves and it's okay if we find ourselves needing to kind of, bring it back a little bit in one way or another. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Mary. Oh, go Aaron with an E. I have one final thing to say. Um, I just love how you said you, the way you're able to um, uh, bring it down to at the end of this behavior, do I feel completely satisfied and have delight or do I feel shame mm-hmm. and empty? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great way for me personally to start figuring out yeah am i feeling satisfied or do I even just an inkling of shame in what i just did mm-hmm. i mean and being like you said compassionate and curious mm-hmm. behind that compassionate Indeed. and curious that's awesome <laughs> i can't believe that we've been talking for uh an hour and almost five minutes and we haven't mm-hmm. even touched on living in fantasy but fine we won't do it today and there's so much more to say um wow. But yeah, I also just want to finish it off with saying that I did finally come full circle and end up going into real recovery and working the steps and going into 12 step programs. And I came to find out that, you know, working on my outsides and getting all the degrees and all that wasn't fulfilling me. So then I realized I needed to work on my insides. So I did end up in real recovery. So when I say I'm in recovery, I really am in recovery. Um, and I would say that's the other thing in regards to what you guys are asking right now. Are we only addressing the outsides or are we working on the insides? Mm. Because that's one of the ways you'll know too, because you won't feel fulfilled. You'll feel achieved maybe because you're checking boxes, but there isn't going to be a source of inner fulfillment, which comes from working on the inside. Okay. So I would just leave it with, you know, with that. Well, I just want to say one more thing. Mary, how do, how do people get to know more about you and connect with you and what you're up to? Is there like a website? Is there a place where if they have a question, how, how do people get to know you more? <laughs> well, let's see. Um, they can find me through psychologytoday.com if they search Mary Archbeck in Albuquerque. They can... Uh, um, Arch, Archbeck is spelled A-R-C-H-I. B-E-Q-U-E. I'm sorry. I didn't want to leave that up to the imagination. <laughs> Thank you for not saying that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, people, yeah, that's, if anybody would have spelled that, you know, correctly on their own, they get like 10 extra credit points. Super anyway, nice. um, yeah, uh, I also am on the Center for Relationship and Healthy Sexuality website, Center for Relationship and Healthy Sexuality in Albuquerque. Um, and I don't know if you guys do show notes, but I can definitely give you my email mm-hmm. and uh, contact info there. All right. 
And listeners, you know, if you have any questions or comments, uh, dad jokes, or, you know, just wise sayings, send them to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. And that is it for today. We're going to all sign off together. So uh, thanks for hanging in there with us, Mary. Spectacular. That was super fun. And uh, wait, how does Nate do this? This is Nate's part. Um, there's there's a spot. He says something. And then we say, <laughs> I'm Aaron. I'm Aaron. I'm Mary. And we are your pals here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Aaron with an E. Give me an arc. <laughs> the Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.